Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to some patron emails. You guys have been emailing me a lot over the years, and I have a long, long list of everyone's emails, and I'm, I'm working my way through them because I really want to answer everyone's emails, and so I'm going to try to get to everyone. All right, this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor at Antioch University Seattle in Seattle, Washington, in the Couple and Family Therapy Program. All right, this first email is from patron John from Chicago. Oh, by the way, John from Chicago signed his email. Uh, feel free to refer to me as John from Chicago. I, I never, uh, so if I don't, if it's a sensitive email, I'll just say it's from Anonymous. But if you could tell me how you want me to refer to you as, that would really help me. Uh, particularly if you want me to say your name and where you're from, you know. So anyway, John, patron John from Chicago, who asked me to refer to him as patron John from Chicago, writes, "Hello, Doctor Honda. I am a mental health ca- I am a me- mental health counselor and have been practicing psychotherapy for over three years now. By far, the biggest problem I've had is merging the older traditions, such as psychodynamic, Rogerian, Gestalt, etc., with the evidence-based practices of today." I feel a strong affinity towards the humanistic practices, but from what I've found, they are not as successful at handling many disorders as some of the more popular practices today, such as CBT, DBT, REBT, etc. I know it's important to bring your own style as a therapist, but I find myself trying to guide conversations to accommodate to the most effective therapies, even when it seems somewhat uncomfortable to do so in, in the session. Because I, I want to be effective, but, um, you know, so I have to use these evidence-based therapies. And I also don't want to get sued for using an ineffective, unproven form of therapy. Would you be willing to go into this topic further to help me and other young counselors understand how to balance this internal struggle of using older therapies with the more empirically validated modern ones? End of email. Okay, I'm going to try to contain my rage. Uh, Patron John from Chicago, I'm not upset at you. I'm upset at people who have taught you these ridiculous notions that are becoming more prevalent in our field. You are basically exhibiting a common understanding and mistaken understanding in our field that there are, quote-unquote, good, effective evidence-based therapies such as cognitive behavioral therapy, and there are bad, ineffective, unproven therapies such as Gestalt, Rogerian, and Psychodynamic. This is false. It is empirically wrong, scientifically wrong. It is factually untrue. It is not what the experts understand. It is often what instructors who are biased will say, even though they clearly have no idea what they're talking about. I mean, when you listen to this podcast, you know that I rail on instructors who don't know what they're talking about. You know, I don't have a problem with an instructor not knowing something, but I do have a problem with an instructor talking out of their ass and acting like they know what they're talking about when they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. To say that there's no evidence that I've talked about this before, so you can listen to other episodes about this. And maybe I've already answered your question about this in previous episodes, but just to go a little bit um, on this right now, is that um, the, the fact is, fact, factual, that psychodynamic therapy, interpersonal therapy, intersubjective therapy, object relations therapy, is a evidence-based practice. Let me repeat that. There is empirical evidence that psychodynamic therapy is effective. 
there's evidence that Rogerian uh, person-centered therapy is effective. Tons of evidence. And when someone says that CBT has evidence and Rogerian does not have evidence, they are either stupid or they're lying. So you make the call as a student watching an instructor say such a stupid thing. Okay? So there's that. The other thing is that when they actually um, uh, you know, hold up particular studies regarding evidence-based practices, a lot of times what they're talking about is very discrete diagnoses such as major depressive disorder. And so what they will test is they'll say, okay, what is the best manualized? Remember, it has to be manualized. And it is nearly impossible to manualize psychodynamic therapy, by the way. Um, but they will have to manualize it down to 10 sessions-ish because studies beyond 10 weeks are get more and more expensive. So that's another factor that goes into why certain things seem as if they have more evidence about its effectiveness than others when they actually don't. But um, now, again, this isn't to say that CBT is not effective. I absolutely use cognitive therapy ideas and practices. I absolutely use behavioral ideas and practices. Uh, I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying that all of them have usefulness. All the theories that have risen to the top of our awareness in this field have usefulness and should be integrated. All you have to do is look for John Norcross, okay? Google John Norcross. He is a, a well-respected writer and, um, and, you know, theoretician, so to speak, on integrated psychotherapy. Um, he gets, he's published in, you know, American Psychological Association books. Um, one of his books is called Integrated uh, or Psychotherapy Integration. It's a highly technical, highly well-researched book. Another book that I love of his is called Psychotherapy Relationships That Work by John Norcross. It's edited by John Norcross. He is at the cutting edge. I'm convinced that in 50 years, we will look at John Norcross as the smartest, most unknown person of our time. Uh, Now, he's not the only one. Uh, there are several other researchers in the American Psychological Association that know of this as well. But the what I do, which what what I found to work myself, and what I have found, uh, and after I found so as as twenty year twenty plus years of being a therapist, I have found that a careful, thoughtful integration of all the theories actually is the best approach. Meaning that I. Uh, like them all and I appreciate them all and there's usefulness of all of them. And sometimes I'm using this kind of approach and sometimes I'm using that. Sometimes I'm using a mixture and there's this old dogma that you can't do that. And I challenge anyone to demonstrate to me scientifically that you cannot. And and John Norcross uh, talks about it uh, very technically and it all works. So anyway, um, John Norcross, look him up, buy his stuff. Excellent stuff. Very technical, wonderful stuff. Uh, scientific, empirical. <laughs> okay. Um, so um, now, uh, what I will say about evidence-based practices is that you know, again, they often study discrete diagnoses because you need to have some way of measuring whether or not therapy is successful or not, right? And one of the easiest ways, and less expensive ways, and uh, less controversial ways, is to take a measure such as the uh, Beck Depression Inventory. 
and administer that at the beginning of treatment and get a number. So on a scale from 1 to 75, this person has a 50, which means they are you know, fairly depressed. They have an index, they have a depression index of 50, something like that. And then at the end of 10 weeks of CBT, on average, people have a reduction of their BDI index from, you know, uh, by 20 points. So the 50 guy goes down to a 30 on average. Okay. So, so that's wonderful. And that tells us something and that's good research. And what that tells us is that CBT is good for short-term, 10-week-long, manualized treatment of depression symptoms. And when you match it up against psychodynamic therapy for 10 weeks, it's better at reducing the number on the Beck depression inventory um, than other kinds of therapy. It's, it's highly effective. Now, what idiots will do is they'll be like, well, therefore, everyone should be a CBT therapist because they have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> um, they'll just extrapolate from this from this really tiny, tiny sliver of our profession and extrapolate that out. That Now, to, to make an analogy in the medical profession, that would be like saying um, the best way to heal a broken bone in the leg is to set the bone and to put a cast on it. Therefore, every medical professional should put a cast on everyone who comes into their office. That's exactly what these people are saying when they say that you should do CBT and that all the other forms of therapy have no evidence. That would be ignoring the fact that all the research on cancer, all the research on thyroid, all the research on the brain, all the research on, you know, your eyes, you know, like there's research that shows that there are different treatments depending on the different part of the body or the different problem. And it's the same when it comes to psychotherapy. The other thing is that it's well-researched and I hope well-known that theory had in terms of um, effectiveness and outcomes and therapy in general is much less of a factor than your relationship with your client. Um, you know, they have studied outcomes globally across many different types of therapy, and they have found that it doesn't really matter what uh, theory you follow, whether it be psychodynamic or CBT, it, what really matters and has much more of an effect is whether or not you pay attention to the relationship or not which, lo and behold, is a very humanistic psychodynamic idea. Psychodynamic people and humanistic people have been focusing on their relationships since the, since the beginning they started their, their professions and their theories, whereas CBT has not. So by definition, uh, evidence points toward humanistic and psychodynamic therapies, particularly a certain brand of them, uh, much more so as positive for outcomes than CBT will ever be because no theory is as good as the relationship. Okay. Now, some CBD people absolutely focus on the relationship, which is wonderful, and they're following the research. So here's another thing. I am trying to think. I've been practicing for you know 20 plus years. I have seen uh, thousands of clients, I'm guessing. I don't know. I one time did an estimate, but... So, but I know it's thousands and I have never had a client who came to me and said, I want to work on depression and that's it. Never. I've never in my entire career had someone come to me and say, the only thing I want to work on is my major depressive episode symptoms ever in my entire career. (laughs) Why? Because people 
well, at least in my practice, I, and I've worked in several settings. I've worked at addiction centers. I've worked in private practice. I've worked at family service agencies. I've worked, I've done in-home therapy. You know, I've had a, obviously a private practice for a long time. Uh, I've worked in a number of different settings and I've never, ever had a client come to me with that single problem. People come to therapy with multiple uh, problems that overlap and sometimes they don't lend them and, and, and none of those problems tend to tend, tend to lend themselves to research. You know, someone comes to therapy and they're like, I want to meet with you because I'm unsure about my marriage. I've, you know, I, I feel like, um, I, I'm just unsure as to whether or not my marriage is good or not. And I, I, I feel alone in life and I feel like I'm stagnating. I feel like I'm unsupported and I just feel like I want to talk with someone to figure out if it's me or if it's my relationship or, or, or what. And, and also uh, my mom died last year and I'm still kind of suffering from that. And my health is sort of declining and, and I, I've, you know, I, I'm not, is able to exercise the way I used to. And sometimes I think I, I might drink a little bit too much wine at night and um, my, my sleep isn't going so well. Okay, so all, all of those problems, you know, that's a typical client. They will come to me and they'll, they'll present all of those issues. There is no way that you can find a group of a thousand people who have the exact same problems as that person and be able to to test what sort of therapy I should be using with that person. You know, that's how, that's how evidence-based therapy research works is you have to get a group of people all with the exact same problem, like major depressive disorder. And, and also they'll screen people out of those studies who have other problems. If, if people, if people sign up for the study and say, yep, I have major depressive disorder. I'd like to be in this study. And then they did, then they find that they also have PTSD. Well, they eliminate that person from the pool because they have a confounding problem that will mess with the data. You know, they want to isolate the variable of de- major depressive disorder. Well, I'm here to tell you, I've never had a client come to me with that one problem. So, the very nature of this research completely misses the the the, the extremely typical, if not universal, experience that therapists actually have. Now, some clinics will have this. They will have clients who will come in and ask just for major depressive disorder help. And and many of them might not have, you know, another problem. So it's not to say that there aren't clinics or, you know, clinical situations where you're not going to see that. Um, and it's, and maybe I have had a client like that in my life, in my career, but I don't remember any. Um you know, I, I can remember one kind of when I was at internship 20 something years ago and it, she actually had issues in other areas of her life that she just didn't present at first. Her family was um, difficult. She had a lot of stress, her job. She didn't like, you know, there's a lot of issues anyway. Um, so evidence-based therapy research typically focuses on these extremely simplistic presenting problems and then proceeds to demonstrate something, you know, that, okay, this manualized treatment helps with this very discrete problem, but that completely misses the reality of our actual clients. And it also is a 
a very medical way of looking at things, you know, because when, when people come into the medical office, uh, they come in, they say, I have a broken bone or I, you know, I just had a heart attack or I have a, you know, I don't know, a, a pencil sticking out of my ear or something. There's these very discrete things. And then you proceed to test different, different treatments for it and you, you measure outcomes. Well, therapy very rarely lends itself to that kind of thing based on what I've been telling you, you know, uh, multiple problems, multiple issues. Plus, even if they just had one problem, like the first one I said that person showed up with, with which is, I'm not sure if my life is going the way I want it to. Well, how do you know what that exactly means? And how do you measure that against other people? Of course, you could come up with some, some quote unquote, you know, psychometric that could, that could you know, try to measure that. It's like, you know, on a scale from one to 10, how screwed up do you think your life is? And then you could measure that before and after or something. But that's ridiculous. I mean, the notion that you could somehow compare one person's existential crisis against another is just stupid. There's just no way you can do that. You know, it's just too subjective. Um, Depression is very subjective, but, you know, they try to objectify it with a number through these measures. And, you know, um, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to poo poo that. I think it's fine. It probably does. It's, it, it's been useful in my work, but it, it's just of one, you know, one human experience, major depression, which is, you know, like I said, um, in fact, I'm trying to remember the last time someone presented in my office or even among my supervisees. And, and that was even one of the presenting problems where they were like, you know, I, I, my relationship isn't going well my job isn't going well, my health isn't going well, and I have major depressive disorder. I'm trying to remember the last time that major depressive disorder was even one of the issues for any of my clients or any of my supervisees clients. Uh, people come to therapy because they have family conflict or relational conflict or stuff like that. You know, so John from Chicago, you know, think about your actual clients and then actually go to the quote unquote empirical research regarding these these different theories and Look up exactly what these studies looked at. Now, what stupid or ignorant instructors will do will will say, "Oh, there was a manualized, um, you know, treatment for depression that was successful, and therefore, um, you know, if you use any f- other form of therapy with this sort of thing, uh, or or any other problem, then you're at, you're outside of the realm of evidence, and you're actually being unethical." I've heard people say, "You're being unethical if you're a Gestalt therapist. You're unethical because it's not evidence based practice." And I just want to strangle those people, you know. Not only because it's extremely ignorant and stupid, but why are you trying to attack other people's other people's approaches? You know, it's like, what's up your ass? <laughs> like, why? The only reason why I'm so upset about this is because people target psychodynamic therapy a lot and humanistic therapy. They're just like, ah, oh, it's not evidence based; it's worthless. And I'm like, are you that dumb? Like, do you not understand research? Do you not have you not seen have, have you not seen other research? I mean, there is specific research that have gone over in other episodes, up other episodes that has specifically demonstrated that psychodynamic therapy is the best thing for particular disorders against other kinds of therapies like CBT and against supportive therapies or against placebo or against you know control groups. They've found that, and it's totally intuitive because you know the fact that these theories and these models have risen to the top of our awareness means that a lot of people have found them to be at least anecdotally useful. 
Um, there's been a lot of different approaches that have cropped up over the years. And a lot, I would say, you know, I'm guessing the vast majority have been weeded out because most people are like, oh, I don't think this really works, <laughs> you know? So so if it's risen to the top of our awareness, in all likelihood, it, it does have some utility. Um, so... Again, um, so let's see, you're saying um, you feel a strong affinity towards humanistic practices. Yes, I applaud that, not only because I use that myself, but also because, again, most of the variance in outcomes in psychotherapy outcomes and research demonstrates that the relationship which humanistic practices are very focused on are the most effective things to be working on. Um, you also say uh, da, 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 um, that it seems you seem you, you feel uncomfortable when you're trying to force them back to CBT or DBT or REBT. Yeah, totally. You know, follow your gut on that. If your gut is if your gut is telling you trying to force people into this particular model doesn't feel quite right right now. Well, maybe it's because it's not quite right in that moment. You know, so think about that. Um, the other thing I'll say is that. You can be a CBT, REBT, DBT therapist, and and you can absolutely integrate a lot of humanistic, even psychodynamic ideas. They're not completely incompatible in my. They're not incompatible at all, really, in my point of view. It depends on how you do it, but I. So it's not like you have to choose, really. And again, John Norcross, psychotherapy integration is his thing. Um, okay, so let's read another email here. Okay, this next email is from patron Aileen. Aileen writes, I am a professional makeup artist as well as having a minor in psychology. And I was wondering about the psychology of makeup. Why do people wear makeup? Why are there some individuals who become obsessed with makeup while others hardly ever wear makeup? Okay, these are good questions. Um, as I say, with all things like this, it's impossible to know the answer to your question because we don't really understand anything about our behavior we only understand that we can measure what the average person actually does. We can actually just observe people and their behavior in terms of answering the question, why do we do things? That is extremely difficult. Um, so uh, if, if not impossible, particularly when it comes to something like this. But if I were to speculate um, as a man who's never worn makeup, although I've worn makeup as a kid when I was in plays in high school, they would – put makeup on us because of the lights apparently but honestly i don't i remember th seeing pictures of myself on stage when i was um in these plays and i was just like man i have too much makeup on my face uh, it seems like people just went a little over the top but anyway as a man who's never really worn makeup um and off the top of my head i can speculate as to why people wear makeup and it's people it's not just women um and a caveat about, you know, before going into this is that I just want to say there's nothing wrong with wearing makeup. There's nothing wrong with wearing makeup or not wearing makeup or wearing, quote unquote, too much makeup or not enough makeup or um, different makeup on different days. There, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a free country. People are allowed to do whatever they want to. And you can do with your body what you want to do with your body. And everyone else can fuck off if they don't like it. So, um, you know, there, there are, we have a culture uh, in our society that will... Uh, give men permission to somehow like 
comment on women's makeup and be like, oh, you have too much makeup on, as if the woman woke up in the morning and put on her makeup because she was trying to please that particular man. <laughs> you know, It's like people put on makeup for a variety of reasons, and some of which have nothing to do with other people. And um, you know, there, there's, there just can't be any comment on that. So I, I just want to say like, um, people are free to do whatever they want to do. And that is their choice. And even if it comes from a weird place or some kind of place of insecurity, that is their right. And, um, everyone else needs to just shut up about that. But if I was to speculate as to why people wear makeup for various different reasons, um, one of the things I, I will say is that sexism is, is a thing. I mean, why in our society do men be, you know, they're expected not to wear makeup? And I mean, when you think about all the different things that require that a, that a woman has to do in our society before she can leave the house compared to a man, you, you just have to wonder, like, sex, sexism has something to do with that, right? You know, men are just like privileged. They're just like, yeah, I can just, you know, put on a T-shirt, walk out the door. I don't even have to shower. I don't have to comb my hair, and and I will be acceptable to the outside world. Whereas a woman, uh, in in many societies, isn't acceptable at all. If she just walks out the door the way a man does, and is au natural, people will judge her and be like, "What's wrong with you? Like you look disgusting. Like you look tired." And blah blah blah. Whereas a man, everything's fine. So sexism, I think, is is part of it. There's a lot of pressure on women to, um, you know, look presentable and this kind of stuff. And, um, so there's that, and there's, you know, women internalize that, uh, marginalization as well. And those messages, uh, number two speculation is culture. All you got to do is look at other cultures around the planet and you immediately see that every culture or many cultures have completely different sets of ideas of what people should look like and what beauty is, you know, it's like, and, and even over time, societies will change. I mean, all you have to do is look at makeup in the sixties and go like, huh, that's what they thought was good. <laughs> um, tattoos, you know, the fact that we have tattoos now, or the, you know, why do why does everyone in our society wear so so many pairs of jeans now? You know, why do why do people paint their houses with such drab colors in America? You know, what are, why can't we paint our houses pink or polka dotted? Why can't we have a polka dotted car? You know, we we will we'll wear polka dotted shirts. Why not polka dotted cars? You know, it's there's just it's just culture. We just have these ideas about what's good and what's not. And culture absolutely defines for women the way they're supposed to look and and makeup is absolutely a part of that. Um, you know, and whether we want to acknowledge it or not, all of us are just massively conforming human beings, whether it be makeup or the color of our car or the color of our house or the the jeans we wear or the way we talk or the kinds of things we talk about or, you know, we, we are just massively conforming. Everyone likes to think of themselves as like, ah, I, I'm not a, I don't follow trends. It's like, um, if, you know, all you got to do is look at yourself and look at people from other cultures and realize there's a lot of variety in life and you look exactly like your neighbors and act and talk and have the same opinions as your neighbors do. <laughs> so, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just human nature and, and, you know, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with being conformist and there's nothing wrong with conforming to, um, you know, uh, common understandings of wearing makeup in the same way. There's nothing wrong with painting your house a, you know, a color that is common to the, your neighborhood. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Number three, people like to look good and attractive. Um, you know, yeah, sure. We can say it's culture in terms of what defines good and attractive, but people who wear makeup, uh, probably, you know, many people like to look good. They like to leave the house looking good. They like to uh, present themselves well. You know, um, 
That's why none of us have uh, completely shaggy head of hair. <laughs> we 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 go to the hair salon because you know everyone gets their haircut because they don't want their hair to look like crap. You know they want to be presentable. Um, you know um, it's just and makeup is a part of that. So uh, again, it's a cultural manifestation, but as is anything regarding how we present ourselves in public. Um, all you know, when I look at pictures of my my relatives who lived long ago, my ancestors in the '30s, the '20s, you realize that people didn't leave the house without dressing up very well. People dressed extremely well. I, I have I have pictures of my Japanese relatives in Washington State uh, going fishing, and they're wearing a three piece suit. <laughs> my great grandfather is wearing a three piece suit in a canoe, and I'm like. I mean, you know, I've worn I've worn in my life a three piece suit like you know twenty times in my life, <laughs> let alone like while I went fishing. You know, anyway. So you know, it's a cultural manifestation, and you know, people are the same today, and you know, people want to look good. So that's another reason. Uh, number four, insecurity. Uh, um, you know, there's some people. You know, all of us are, or many of us are, many are fairly insecure. And when we leave the house, we're really worried about being judged and we want to fit in. And we do this through many different ways, uh, one of which is through the way we talk or the way we comb our hair or the kind of car we drive, including how we wear makeup or or whether or not um, you know we, we wear makeup or not. Um, you, you know, uh, get, getting back to sexism, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I mean, just as a stark example of how our society is sexist regarding the way women present themselves is just watch what will happen if you go to the beach in your bikini and you have hairy legs and hairy armpits. Just just, just, just watch what people do. <laughs> or if you could secretly record their quiet whispers or their judgments in their brain. But again, depending on what culture you're in. But if you're in Seattle and you go to the beach and you have hairy legs – and hairy armpits, um, you're going to get some looks, and and people are, might even say things out loud. But they're definitely going to be thinking things. They're going to be like, "Oh my god, gross! She has you know," and it's like, "Man can do that. It's just fine. A man can have hairy armpits and hairy legs. And um, why does a woman have to always you know change that for for everybody else? I mean, it's not just like, oh, she's not fitting in. People will actually have a revulsion to it. The culture is that strong." That um, and in other cultures, no big deal. Uh, hairy armpits for a woman, hairy legs, no big deal. They don't think of it as being strange at all, at all. So you know, obviously, we're affected by culture. Anyway, number five, creativity. Some people really love to express themselves through their makeup, through their tattoos, through their hairstyles, through their hair color, they through their dress. They they really they express themselves artistically through their makeup. And I know people who do that, and it's they just like the they like the process. It's a ritual. They like the way they look. They like to, you know, kind of add a new flair to their makeup, a new color, a new line, a new this or that. And you know, they take a lot of pride in that. And they don't really care if people think if it looks good or not. It's just like they just like the way it looks for themselves. And number six, the last speculation I can think of off the top of my head is class or in group in grouping. You know, different classes, different in-groups will express themselves in completely different ways and makeup is a part of that. 
And I've experienced that um, with, you know, that being, if I just walk around in my life, I don't actually bump into people outside of my class very often or people outside my in-group very often. But as a therapist, particularly in the past, I would become exposed to people of various different in-groups and classes. And I would realize, wow, like, the these this group has a completely different understanding of the you know of fashion and of um all that stuff including makeup and you know if if you th- if you can think of people outside of your in group um you know like oh there, you know there's a particular sort of uh neighborhood where all the girls have makeup in a particular way and it's and it looks it might look really bad to you but to people in that neighborhood, it looks really good. And and part of it is a class signal, like you're trying to signal your class. Like upper class people will signal themselves with particular kinds of makeup. Like if, if you were an upper class woman, you know, you are rich and wealthy and you want to make sure that other people understand that you're rich and wealthy – uh, one of the ways that you would, um, th- you know, one of the ways you would avoid uh, some of the, some of the things you would avoid is putting on perhaps too much makeup or too little makeup. It has to be tasteful makeup, you know, quote unquote tasteful makeup. It's not actually tasteful makeup. It is just upper class version of makeup expression. You know, y- you also wouldn't want a visible tattoo on your face or your neck, right? Because that's a that's a class signal. Upper class people would never put a a big tattoo across their forehead or get a, you know, a grill, a gold grill for their teeth or, you know, there's certain hairstyles that upper class people would avoid if if they wanted to make sure that they gave off the signal that they were, you know, middle or middle upper or upper class. And, you know, our a lot of our fashion and our behavior and our conforming behaviors are dictated by in-group and class distinctions. Okay, well, that does it for that. Um, and uh, again, I'm a man, and I've never really worn makeup, so take everything I just said with a complete grain of salt. Um, I might have no idea what I'm talking about because I just know that. <laughs> um, really, anything I talk about, I know I might not have any idea what I'm talking about. Um, if you wear makeup and you have ideas, especially you, Aileen, let me know what you think of what I just said. Email me at contact at psychologyandseattle.com. Let's take a break, and when we get back, let's get to some more emails. Okay, we're back from the break. Uh, Some announcements. We have our live show coming up August 11, 2018. We finally locked down a date for that. Not sure the time. Um, You know, when this episode comes out, I might have already announced the time, so consider that. (laughs) Sometimes the the times in which these episodes episodes come out, they get get a little jumbled in terms of the order. So, but... um, as far as I know right now, it's August 11, 2018 in Seattle. Um, and if you haven't already, become a patron of the podcast. We go into patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Okay, so let's go with the next email here. This is from patron Brian. Patron Brian writes, Hello, Dr. Kirk and the team. I am a psychotherapist in the UK who works mainly with anxiety, depression, and suicidality. I think a good idea for a show might be The Nightmare Client. I will give you some examples from Over the Pond. This has happened to me on more than one occasion, and it is the client who I will call the pretender. 
These are people who will ring me up and have a conversation over the phone or via text who have no intention of needing help, but would rather have their self-centered ego and their own inner narcissist gratified in yanking someone's chain. I know of a few therapists, even in my local area, who have had this trouble, and I presume it might be something that occurs over the pond in your neck of the woods. The first caller that I ever had was depressed. What I did find very odd was her slightly upbeat tone and her zigzagging speech that went from happiness to sadness. So up went the red flag. But she did seem interested, and I managed to get an appointment. I rang her at the allotted time only to be greeted with, Oh, hi, after I introduce myself, and then the phone goes dead. So I ring back in case my phone has been playing up. Then I, then I knew she was fraudulent as the name I had recorded in the notes had not coincided with the one that was on the, her answering machine. I was really annoyed. Now I get the youthful individuals who have a go and they always want to talk by text as they think it gives them some form of anonymity. In fact, this happened only recently. They start by, they start by prank calling you and then they want to, then they pick up, and then when you pick up, they hang up. And he, he goes into more description about these people who will basically prank him. And he has been thinking as to why he might be attracting these sort of people. And he's thinking about changing his website and this kind of thing. But my response to this is, holy crap, that is awful. I mean, you're trying, you know, you're trying to provide a service to other human beings. And then these assholes are pranking you. Um, That's awful. I have never experienced that myself. That's never happened to me ever, to my knowledge. And... I think I would remember something like that. And I've never heard of it happening to one of my supervisees or to a colleague. I will tell you that I have had supervisees who have told me that there will be creeps and essentially sexual predators who will call women and, you know, they'll call that these guys will call women and they'll be like, so I was thinking about looking for a therapist and I just wanted to ask you a few questions and see if you might be the right therapist for me. And then these young, you know, starting out novice therapists are like, ooh, a, a, new, a client for my private practice. This is going to be great. And so, you know, she's like, okay, yeah, tell me what's up. And then he, you know, starts with a couple of questions, you know, a couple of things. And then the, the conversation kind of he says, well, and, you know, I'm having some trouble with relationships. And what, what's your approach to that? And, okay, I'm, I'm having trouble with, um, you know, some past relationships and, What's your approach to that? Okay, um, and actually, I'm having some trouble with sexual things. And what's your approach to that? And actually, I've been having trouble with uh, masturbation and with uh, women. And you know, and then the conversation becomes much more explicit as as it progresses. And what I'm guessing is that the guy is masturbating while this is happening because of the nature of the conversation, or at the very least, is just verbally getting off on this kind of thing. And then the uh, supervisee of mine will sense something's wrong and hang up and then call me, thank God. And then I sort of walk him through and go like, oh, yeah, I've heard this before. Um, I try to actually prepare people for this. Um, now, it's, a, it's completely possible that this is one creep that is doing this to all these different people because, you know, once you get a fetish down, you're, you're going to blow through a lot of different therapists and there's only so many – therapist in Seattle. So you're probably going to do a lot of damage. And, and it's, it's, you know, nearly impossible to track someone like this down, because how do you prove that they're sexually assaulting you? And 
how do you actually track them down, you know, and what police officer or detective is going to pursue something like this? You know, I'm just guessing there's just nothing you can do. So, um, so that's one example of what I might call in that genre of prank calling, although I wouldn't call it prank calling. It's actually just like sexual assault, like flashing someone on the subway or something. But no, I've never heard of, of prank calling. Um, that's, um, yeah, it's mean. I think patron Brian, you're sort of drawing some conclusions about these people that I don't think, you know, I mean, one, you're calling them narcissistic or egocentric and stuff. And I, I'm, it's really, you know, you just really have no idea why they're doing this. Um, um, you know, it, it hurts your feelings and it's annoying to you and it bothers you. And so you want to lash out at them with anger, which is totally justified and, and go for it. But I wouldn't use your clinical knowledge as a weapon in that way. I would just be like, well, I don't know why, but they're assholes and I hate them. <laughs> um, you could say that all day long. It has nothing to do with, um, evaluating their psychologies. Um, and also, uh, according to some of your stories, um, I think you're, it's not even clear if some of these people were actually pranking you. I mean, the first person who called you, uh, the first example you gave is uh, you saying that she called you up and she said she was depressed and then her mood kind of vacillated while she was on the phone where she went from happy to sad. And, and then when you called her back, she was like, oh, and then she hung up on you. And then when you you know looked it up, her, the, her name didn't match the the name of on the answering machine. Um, now, you know, you could be right. The person could be pranking you, but the person, but it's unclear. You know, you just don't know. There's a lot of possibilities there. I mean, one possibility is that she legitimately is suffering from something that she's calling depression, but is, is something else. And, uh, you know, what you're sensing on the phone is, oh, it doesn't sound like depression. It sounds like maybe it's something else. I mean, you know, a lot of clients will call saying, I'm suffering from this when in actuality they're not. They're, they just don't understand how to assess things. So there's that. And then when you call – and then they had second thoughts later on. They're like, um, actually, I'm terrified of therapy and I don't want to do that. Or they didn't really like the way you came across on the phone and they're just like, eh, I don't know how to tell this person I found someone else. Or, you know, God knows. And maybe they live with someone else and they don't, you know – or maybe she was using a false name because she just, you know, didn't want to put herself out there. You know, this is a bit of a stretch, but I'm just saying that it's just really hard to know exactly what's driving these behaviors from people. Um, uh, it's also possible that you have a group of teenagers or pranksters in your community who are pranking, uh, you know, you you in a variety of ways and your colleagues in a variety of ways. But I'd be curious for other listeners if this has happened to you, if you're a clinician, how often you get pranked. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting uh, thing. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's no research on that. So I guess I'd just do my own anecdotal research with the listeners. Let me know. If you're a therapist, do people prank you? Uh, is, that, is that a thing? Let me know, especially in the UK. Is it, is it is a UK thing? I have to say it really breaks my... Um, stereotype of people in the UK. I'd, I would think that's more of an American thing, people prank calling people. <laughs> um, somehow it makes me feel better that, you know, people are suffering from douchebags all over the world. But anyway, let's go on to another email. Okay, this next email is from patron Barbara. Patron Barbara from Italy writes, Hello there, I'm Barbara from Italy. I'm asking you if it's possible to talk about something strange that is happening lately among Western populations. 
What is exactly happening between the science community and the masses? How come people have become so skeptical towards science, the science world? As a scientist yourself, how do you deal with it? I'm very worried about this trend, the flat earth trend, the reptilians thing, the anti-vax thing, etc. We, we have iPhones and stuff, but now there are people thinking that sleeping with a red coat on can cure measles. End of email. Uh, that's a new one I haven't heard. Wearing a red coat can cure you of measles. Maybe it's an Italian thing. I don't know. Um, yeah, this is a very good question. Um, if again, it's multifactorial, but if I were to multifactorial, but if I were to speculate about some things, number one are political and corporate forces. There are certain corporate and therefore political forces who benefit from us not trusting the scientific community. A very obvious example of this is that the you know the 97 99% of climatologists agree that our current global warming is likely human induced and that we need to do something or else the you know polar ice caps are going to completely melt and we're going to flood many lowlands across the globe and refugees and famine and a lot of horrible things are going to happen. And so, uh, you know, the scientific community is completely on board with that. But there are corporations who stand to lose their entire livelihood and their stocks will plummet. And so they, you know, to some extent in a smart move, it's an immoral move, but it's smart that they pay for lobbyists to pay for uh, politicians to think a certain way. Um, and to say certain things and to promote certain things. And they will pay and literally get certain politicians elected, in, and the politicians know how to get reelected, and that is to hold, you know, hold the party line and to deny global warming and to uphold the, you know, in the, the oil, gas, petroleum industrial complex. And so, but that's just one example, and there are there are thousands of examples of corporations who you know they're they're trying to keep their stock up, they're trying to make money, and one of the ways they can do that is to slow down progress around stuff like this. And so, um, that's so so one of the ways you do that is by trying to trick the masses into believing in your base, like I.E. Republicans, that global warming isn't a thing. And that it isn't, uh, you know, created by humans. I mean, I, it, it's just, it, you know, it's astonishing. You have you have politicians that are saying like, I think I think that global warming is natural, and it, you know, things fluctuate. Meanwhile, ninety seven, ninety nine percent of climatologists are like, um, we are the scientists, and we understand better, and we know that, uh, and it's impossible to know for sure, but it's there's strong evidence this is a result of of humans. Blah blah. So, um, so political and corporate forces are extremely powerful. I mean, how much money do climatologists have? I mean, I, I don't even know if I'm using the right word. Climatologists, people who know about the climate. Um, how much money do they have? Whereas, how much money does you know Texaco have? And is Texaco still a company? Um, BP and other petroleum companies. I mean, how you know you you put money on something and it's going to change. I mean, I have to look at this NRA. Anyway, number two, the media is not interested in reporting the truth anymore. That is a fact. Uh, and that's been a fact for decades. The media is not interested in informing you about the facts or about science. They're only interested in keeping you watching. They have to sell ads. 
And so sometimes, oftentimes, real science does not keep you watching and does not help sell ads. What, what does keep you watching are lots of different kinds of things that don't have anything to do with science. Um, you know, things that um, are fantastical, you know, like UFOs and blah, blah, blah. Number three, we've always been massively superstitious. And, um, you know, the, the, the practice of science is basically the practice of trying to um, uh, force us to look at things empirically. You know, if we just act naturally, we become extremely superstitious. We become extremely um, – we start making guesses because we're humans. We're not machines. We are trying to survive and we have certain heuristics that we follow that lead us to conclusions that just aren't aren't reflected in, in reality. And like for example, just, just one example of this is that I always think about is when I played baseball as a, as a kid – um, I, I, I never pitched that. That was the one position I never played. I, I played first base, second base, shortstop. I don't think I ever played third base. I catched, I played outfield, um, and I never pitched. And one thing you realize about playing baseball is you spend, a, if you, if you're not pitching and catching, you're spending a lot of time just standing around waiting for a, the ball to be hit. And if, and if it hit, and if it does get hit, you might not even be involved in the play. And so I remember, I would spend a lot of time just watching the pitcher pitch. And one of the things that I developed, I'll never forget this, is I developed this superstitious routine that I, I was trying to influence the pitcher to, th- to throw strikes and to throw, you know, to, to strike the guy out. And I developed, I, I, I wish I could show you, but I, so imagine a peace sign and I would sort of, um, I would sort of encompass the pitcher in the peace sign, if that makes any sense. And I would do this sort of like sweeping motion. And I, and I remember like, I don't know how long I did this. It could have just been for one game, but it's probably not. It's probably for several games where I would do this hand thing with the pitcher because I believed slightly that if I did that, he would strike the guy out because I wanted our team to win. And again, it, it wasn't because I – no one told me that superstition. I just developed it because I was bored out of my mind waiting for the ball to be hit to me. And you know, when people get bored and if there's nothing to occupy our, our minds, we end up just kind of turning to these weird um, things that sort of keep our mind entertained or something. I don't know. So we've always been massively superstitious. It's a natural thing. And science often challenges these superstitions and – we will resist that naturally because we're like, wait a second, I like this superstition. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel good to believe this or that. And science you know, often takes that away from us. Number four, scientists are really bad at communicating with the public in general. I mean, we have some shining examples like Neil Tyson or Bill Nye or the late, great Carl Sagan. But in general, scientists are just terrible at communicating with, with the public. I mean, all you have to do is think about like, um, how many times have you heard a politician talk about the fact that um, global warming isn't real? How many how many pundits, how many you know Alex Joneses and all these people have talked about it? And and how how many people do you know talk really eloquently about um, about global warming and the scientific demonstration of it? I mean, you, you could point toward, towards Al Gore, but you know he isn't the best communicator at the t- you know all the time, and so. So anyway, scientists, but scientists in general, people who actually do science and study things are, are just terrible at communicating with the public because it's not a part of their job, you know, like 
to become a scientist, you have to be good at research. You have to be good at research proposals. You have to be good at grant writing. You have to be good at organizing things. You have to be good at uh, statistics. You have to be. Uh, you have to get a doctorate. You have to, you, there's a lot of skills you have to possess, uh, none of which involve uh, talking to the public or getting clicks on the internet. You know, and so science. There's this huge gap between science and the public, and part of it has to do with the system of science. You know what. What I think there's a movement to get going, and there's there's some shining examples of this, but it, it's way below what it needs to be. Is their universities need to need to actually pay PR people for their scientific research that they're making at the university? I mean, there's universities that are producing just stellar, awesome um, uh, research, and they're not doing enough to publicize it. So anyway, number five, sci- scientists make claims that are sometimes really stupid are famously stupid. You know, in the 90s, I remember the big thing about diet was that fat was bad. You know, carbs are good and fat is bad. And I remember um, fat-free everything, right? Fat-free chips and fat-free that. And everything had to be fat-free. And that was because science had told us that fat was bad. And then fast forward 10, 20 years, and suddenly fat is good. And now carbs are bad. You know, it's like, there's there's a lot of examples like that where it's like, well, wait, I thought you said this and I thought you said that. Now, part of that does has nothing to do with the scientists. It has to do with the reporting and the, the media and the way they write about these kinds of things. But, you know, also part of it has to do with scientists who are desperate to come up with conclusions that are no, you know, that have notoriety because one of the ways to propel your career forward is to find something that's novel, find something that actually is interesting to society and is interesting to the common person. And so a lot of scientists will cut corners and will make claims that they don't have a lot of good data on enough yet. And, um, you know, and so they're wrong. And, and so there's, there's some examples, you know, if you talk to the average person, you know, how well do you trust a, a study, then, you know, they'll be like, well, you know, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. The other thing is, is that the, the average person does not have access to the actual uh, research. The only thing they have access to is the news. And the news is notoriously bad at um, reporting on the science. I mean, there's, again, there's some good examples, but I, I would say like, of the Google News headlines on science, probably less than 1% of the headlines are accurate. Um, you know, you'll just see these claims, you know, like um, science has now, or, you know, computer people have now created a way that you can read minds. You know, you'll see headlines like that. And I'm just like, no, they haven't. I know they haven't done that. That's ridiculous. They haven't done that. That's stupid. Um, and and so uh, so there's this huge gap between scientists and and the public. Because when scientists publish things, they publish things only for other scientists to read. And when you read these journal articles, uh, unless you're in the field, you will have no idea what they're talking about. And so I think that's another problem. And, And lastly, honestly, scientists and people who promote actual science can be condescending. They can be dicks about things. You know, they can be like, oh, my God, you believe in that? You're so dumb. And, you know, that turns people off and they don't want to listen to you anymore. So there's probably other reasons, but those are the reasons I can think of off the top of my head as to as to why I didn't realize in Italy it was happening too. It's definitely happening in the United States. Um, you know, there's there's a there's a pretty big group of people who are deniers of science. The other thing I'll say is that 
people have been denying science for a long time, you know, for forever, you know, uh, evolution, for example, has, has had its critics since it began. And so it's not like anti-science is a new thing. It definitely is not a new thing. It just is more noticeable now because of the internet. Everything is more noticeable now because of the internet. When I was a kid, there were people who denied evolution, but they didn't, if they talked about it, it was just among the people that would listen to them. They had, they had literally no way of broadcasting this to the world. Right now, you, on the other hand, you have a complete, you know, every, everyone uh, has the ability to do that. And for whatever reason, the internet perhaps has a greater amount of these sorts of people. So there's that kind of thing. Now, there are actual things that you can point to that are changing, like the anti-vax movement more recently. Um, definitely is a noticeable uptick in that kind of behavior. But there's probably other kinds of things that have relented, you know. Um, evolution denial, I'm guessing, has gone down. Um, just uh, anecdotally, you know, from the news reporting I'm seeing. But anyway, uh, the point is, is that I'm making is that it's not like we're uh, – I don't perceive the anti-science thing of today to be a problem – I mean, it's a problem, but I don't think we're headed. I don't think our society is headed down the tubes. I think uh, a lot of people believe a lot of people believe in most science. Let's just say, and 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 a and a lot of people have their pet peeve or their pet science thing that they deny. And you know, the flat Earth thing, for example, you know, it's there's so few people who actually believe that, and um, you know. It, it it's it's um, <laughs> comical and people love to talk about it. But um, and I actually I've talked about this before. I actually met someone who was sympathetic toward it, and I completely lost respect for him immediately because I was like, "How in the world? What? You know?" But um, so you know, I've had some exposure firsthand with it. So maybe I shouldn't say it's that um, irrelevant to us. But anyway, my point is is that. Anti-science has been around for a long time, and um, I think, you know, we just need to keep doing what we can do. Oh, it, the best thing we can do, I think, is paying attention to what we click on, um, what we talk about on the Internet. And if you're a scientist out there, um, and if you're a journalist especially, how you treat these things when you have a chance because, um, you know, you can make a difference. And I think – patron Barbara, the reason why you're writing into me is because I've, you know, I've talked about this before kind of, and I will evaluate research and I'll evaluate science and, and this sort of thing. And, um, I guess I'm doing my little part as well. I'm trying to, uh, help people to understand, um, cause you know, science, before I became a scientist, before I got my doctorate, I, I had a, you know, I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of science, but after my doctorate, I have a much better understanding of science and the philosophy of science and the process of scientific research. And and now I really have a much greater understanding of it. And even though before I was pro-science and had a master's degree and blah, 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 um, I still didn't really get it. It's complicated. Science is complicated. <laughs> the process is complicated. Uh, the philosophy, you know, to understand science, you kind of have to understand the philosophy of science too. You know, you can't just understand science itself, but you have to understand like the constructs that, that we follow as a, as scientists and the sort of 
the process of, of getting grants and the process of keeping your job by making sure that you, you know, I used to think that scientists just, they're just this group of scientists and lab coats and they just got paid, you know, lots of money to just do all this science stuff. And that is just not how it is. You know, money's involved, uh, popularity is involved, uh, uh, you know, privilege is involved, um, keeping your job is involved. And, um, you know, coming up with the null hypothesis, you could, you know, potentially lose your job if, if you if you don't find certain things when you're looking for them. And so um, all that needs to be taken into consideration as you're reading a particular journal article. And, um, you know, is it it's it's a tall order to ask the average person to be that uh, to, to to know all that stuff. It's 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 much easier if you're an average person to listen to Donald Trump tweet about something. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Another episode where I successfully rattled off a number of emails. It's always uh, fun and exciting for me to actually uh, cross those emails off my list. And you've you've been asking some interesting questions. Uh, these have been interesting to uh, think about. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. Thank you.